Welcome to The Truth About Taxes and Retirement. This podcast is brought to you by SavingYouTaxes.com and hosted by J. Barry Watts. As an advanced tax strategist and enrolled agent federally licensed by the IRS, Barry is uniquely qualified to go deeper into the Internal Revenue Code than most accountants. He understands and interprets its provisions explaining how they'll help you reduce income taxes you owe so you can direct that previously wasted tax money into tax-free accounts that you can enjoy in your retirement years. Now, on today's episode. Selling an asset equals paying taxes but perhaps not as much as you think. Welcome to the Truth About Taxes and Retirement podcast with J. Barry Watts and Eric Burleson of SavingYouTaxes.com. Their guest today is Bruce Jones of Tax Wealth, and he shares strategies to help mitigate that tax bill. Bruce, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. We're delighted to have you with us today because I know you've got some information that is going to be very helpful to our listeners about how they can save taxes on highly appreciated assets when they sell them. And so we're going to let you go into all the nuts and bolts of that. Why don't you first, though, give us a little background on yourself and on your firm and the kind of work you do? Okay. Well, this is officially my 50th year in financial services. I started back in 1970. Since 74, I've taught the subject of tax mitigation planning and financial strategy planning in all sorts of venues, including university and college settings. For 41 years, I was in the securities and financial planning industries, which I retired from seven years ago, almost eight years ago now, kept tax wealth. And tax wealth is not a marketing company. What it is, it's a tax analysis and solutions research company where we come in and support and proactive tax planning to CPAs and attorneys and financial advisors of all types to help solve their clients' tax problems when they're selling capital assets like real estate or businesses. And we do a lot of work in mitigation of income taxes as well for the self-employed entrepreneur and business owner. Uh, Tax wealth has been around since 1988. So you're a tax strategist, very much like I am, but you're a little more focused, uh, as I understand it, at least the way we have become acquainted, is uh, you're a little more focused on the big ticket items. When people have businesses to sell and maybe have substantial capital gains in the millions of dollars or pieces of real estate to sell that have millions of dollars in capital gains, kind of take us down that path and help us understand the problems that sellers run into and how you can help mitigate those problems. Well, of course, the first thing that is a deterrent to salt to for anyone to sell an asset, whether it's a business or real estate or whatever it might be, are the capital gains and other taxes that are triggered by the sale. And it's unfortunate that a lot of folks fall into believing a falsehood in that there's very little in law that can be done about it. So oftentimes they sort of acquiesce to that thought and, and don't do anything or don't move forward with the sale because they're going to get hit and slammed with taxes. And that's just not the case. There really is a lot in tax law that folks are not aware of that can be looked at at the very least to structure, to customize to that particular transaction in the needs of the client. There are ways of being able to eliminate taxes if the profile of the transaction is correct. And there's ways of being able to delay the taxes for a lengthy period of time, for example. When you bottom line tax planning, Barry, there's only two things you can do with taxes. You either eliminate them or you reduce them. 
And one way of reducing the taxes, for example, is by deferring them as far in the future as you can reasonably do to take advantage of time value of money and inflation and other financial principles. So you mentioned that uh, people didn't necessarily believe there was anything they could do. I'm guessing most folks think that their CPAs are bringing to the table automatically any solutions that are available. Talk to us about that, because apparently that's not your experience. No, it's not. And I'm going to make some comments, but please understand it's not meant to slam the CPA world at all. CPAs have a very, very important role to play for their clients. Absolutely, they do. But in general, it's not tax planning. Most CPAs are oriented from a historic viewpoint. They take information that their clients have done after the fact, filter through the laws that they need to filter through to hopefully come up with an accurate tax return. But that's not tax planning, is it? That is accounting. What tax planning is, is not just doing projections. It's actually finding solutions. And there's different approaches to that. But you've got over 2,700 pages to the tax codes today. And I think most CPAs and enrolled agents as well are more focused on those areas of law that you cannot do and are unaware of the laws that you can take advantage of to mitigate the taxes. So uh, in our business, we call that red lights and green lights, red lights being you must pay tax, green lights being except and unless. And it sounds to me like you're kind of a green light finder as we are. Uh, would that be a correct analysis? That's totally accurate. Absolutely. All right. So let's uh, let's take an example here and uh, you talk us through it a little bit. Let's say I've got a client who sells a piece of property for $10 million or sells his business for $10 million. Now, if he's got a low basis in that, and if he's been depreciating the property, he will have a low basis in it. And chances are he grew that business out of the ground, so probably doesn't have much basis left in it either. Parenthetically, I should mention that basis is the amount of money that you have invested in the deal so that you do not have to pay tax on that. For example, if you bought a stock for 90 cents and sold it for a dollar, your basis would be 90 cents. So business owners, when they sell, they don't have much basis left. And what that means is it all is capital gains. And uh, that capital gain is going to be taxed unless they meet a tax strategist who can help them. And in our case, We knew that you were the expert in this business, and that's why we brought you to the table for one of our clients recently. So tell us what you would recommend in that particular case. How do you begin helping a client with a big capital gain mitigate the tax? Well, the process that we follow is very straightforward. We always start off with what we call a pre-sale tax analysis and money flow projection. And what that does is based upon the data that we receive on a very simple questionnaire that profiles the transaction itself, the basis, the capital improvements made due to the asset, if any, depreciation amounts, type of sale, is it an asset sale, is it a stock sale, all those issues, then we'll prepare the analysis. And it projects out what the the taxes would be triggered by the transaction, both on a federal level and state level, and then combined. And then how much the seller would receive an after-tax profit if they chose not to do effective planning. And then contrasting that is what effective tax law can provide them as compared to after-tax profit. So it's designed to bring more clarity to the transaction so that the client can make a better informed decision along with their CPA and their attorney. 
And it's very important that their CPA and attorneys are involved in this process. And that's certainly welcomed and encouraged. In regards to the types of approaches, as I said earlier, you can sometimes eliminate them, some the taxes, sometimes you we look at deferral techniques. If we're looking at a deferral technique, for example, there are ways in law to where we can defer the taxes for decades and then at close of escrow still provide the seller a near equivalent amount of sale proceeds and upfront cash completely tax-free. Well, I like the sound of tax-free. The word's nearly the equivalent of sales proceeds. I suppose it's all in the definition of nearly. So can you unpack that for us a little bit? And say I've got a business I'm about to sell for $10 million that has zero basis. What's it going to look like if I have to pay the tax on that? Well, let, let's just for quick illustration on a $10 million sale, let's say that's net after all costs for broker, if any, and escrow. And that's what ends up being their, their what's called their net sale proceeds, $10 million. With zero basis, then the full amount is going to be taxable. So you got a 20% capital gains tax federally, depending upon the structure being sold, they may be subject to the 3.8% net investment income tax that came through Obamacare. If they depreciated any of their, uh, well, they had zero basis in that illustration, but if they did have basis and it depreciated, that would actually be recaptured and taxed ordinary rates for how much they depreciated as well. So one tax added to another tax, added to another tax, then you have state taxes on top of that. So if you were sitting here in California, the worst state in the country for taxes, as I'm sitting here, you'd be looking at 23.8% on a federal level plus another 13.3% on state. So you'd be looking at somewhere around, what, 3.6 million or so in taxes? And I, you know, I just read an article uh, yesterday that came out of Sunday's Atlanta Journal-Constitution that said there's a proposal being offered up now that would take our capital gains taxes from the current 23.8, as you mentioned, to 43.4. And that, of course, depends on how the upcoming election goes down. But 43.4 plus the state of California puts you at over 50% if you're a Californian of whatever your sale price is being eaten up in taxes. Correct. Yeah. In fact, our... Um, beloved, in tongue-in-cheek, governor here in California is now also looking at raising the taxes from 13.3 to 16.8. Well, um, I guess he'll be beloved as long as you keep your mask on in between bites. <laughs> That's very true. You know, I've just got to tell you, being a Missourian back here in the heart of the country in the Midwest, we look at the things coming out of California and we think you guys are all smoking weed. <laughs> and, uh, it's just, <laughs> it's astonishing the news that comes out of California that uh, just stuns us. And frankly, we wonder why you don't leave. And we know it's because you enjoy the beautiful weather. There is a thing called a weather tax. <laughs> yes. Yes. And, and I guess you are paying the weather tax. We are paying the weather tax. So, um, We were talking about this tax problem and what that looks like, which we said uh, could be 23.8% when you sell your business, if you don't mitigate that. So person comes to you and you do the analysis for them. What is the analysis going to say is possible? Well, again, what the analysis does, it projects out what the probable taxes are triggered by the transaction, but it also profiles what the benefits of effective tax planning can provide them in regards to the amount of actual tax advantage cash that they receive at close of escrow. So they're given all the information really 
that is required to come to a place to where they can make a decision as to what they feel is best for them. My, my role is not to sell anybody anything as a tax planner. My role is to identify the tax problem and they'll, then delve into the tax law to find solutions and bring that to the table, then work with the client and their CPA and their attorney and any other advisor whom the client would like to bring into the team. And we develop a synergistic collaborative team and serve the client in the best possible way where each of us does what we do best individually, but collectively we give the opportunity for the client to make, make the best decision that they think they can make. So when you bring your solution to the table and they have the choice to implement it or not, uh, what's that solution going to look like? What's it going to do for them that's going to make their situation any different? I think primarily they would have access to the cash. A lot of the planning approaches out there, as you are well aware, do not really maximize what a client gets after close of escrow. There are absolutely planning approaches that do. And largely that's what we're looking for are those types of solutions that would provide a more than modest amount of cash that would be available to them under their control that they can turn around and invest however they choose to invest it. Well, in the state of Missouri, if I sell a business like we've talked about, by the time I pay the feds and pay the state capital in Jefferson City so that uh, my co-host, who's very quiet today, (laughs) Senator Burleson's uh, check goes ahead and clears, by the time that all happens, in excess of 25% will have gone into the state's coffers. So on a $10 million business, you're really walking away with only about $7.5 million in cash. If you do proper tax planning, as you're discussing, how's that number going to be different? What's that going to look like? It would be substantially greater. Let me give you an example. Now, this is California, but just as an example, this is actually a business case that I'm working on now for $32 million that is being sold. And the projected taxes, state and federal combined is 7.3 million plus, and they would net out in after-tax profit 14.9 million. In contrast to that, by doing the deferral approach that I, that I spoke about, they would defer those taxes, the $7.3 million in taxes actually for three decades, they're going to receive, after they pay their debt of $9,011,000 and pay in the taxes, they would actually net seven, just over $7 million in after-tax profit. By doing the deferral approach, they would end up with a little more than $12.5 million tax-free. Wow. So from $7 million to $12 million in your pocket, just because you used a tax planning strategy. How does yes. that sound to you, Eric? That sounds awesome. So the, my question is, how does that logistically work? So does the deferral, is that is that a an amount that's owed that then is set aside for a particular date in the future? Or is it or is it something that they each year on their on what they owed it to the state and to the Fed? Is that is that an amount that they then could potentially offset with other deductions? It could at the uh, three decades later, yes. They wouldn't have to worry about paying the tax at all for three decades. But what, what we're doing in that particular plan approach is we're combining two very commonly used financial instruments. First one is an installment sale contract. Installment reporting has now been in law for 107 years. So certainly nothing untried or, or unknown. In fact, installment reporting 
song and sales drives commerce. So it's something very, very important. But that's been around for a long, long time in law. And what we do is couple that with a specific type of loan contract called an investment business loan. And by doing that, combining the two, we can demonstrate to the sellers I just shared how to structure the deal to defer the taxes for decades, yet receive a near equivalent amount of sale proceeds and upfront cash tax free. In this instance, a little more than 12.5 million, as opposed to the um, net after tax amount of just over 7 million. What we're doing is not only taking advantage of those two commonly used financial instruments, we also take advantage of two financial principles. First one is time value of money. Because the taxes are deferred for such a lengthy period, the seller actually has full use of what would have been the tax dollars for the year of sale to invest, to grow, to have the monies to pay the taxes three decades later, literally out of the growth of the dollars they didn't have to pay in taxes 30 years earlier. So it's all about efficiency. For example, per $100,000 of taxes deferred over three decades, assuming just a 5% net after tax growth rate, which is about half of what the market has always achieved over any 30-year period historically, which gives us over a 200-year history. So it's conservative in nature as far as an assumption growth rate. But a 5% growth rate, that 100000 would grow to be more than $439,000 in three decades, which gives more than sufficient monies to pay the $100,000 of taxes. Again, literally out of the growth of the dollars they didn't pay in taxes many, many years earlier. A dollar 30 years ago is not worth near what it, you know, I mean, a dollar in the 30 years later, you could certainly see that that, there's quite a bit of uh, inflation that's occurred during that time as well. And that is the second principle we take advantage of is inflation. Inflation over the last 30 years average just shy 3%. So if you project inflation out over the next three decades at 3%, as an example, by the time those taxes are ready to be paid in today's dollars, they're only worth about 40 cents on the dollar. And that's an effective reduction of pure tax cost of 60%. I wish I could shift all of my tax years 30 years in the future. Wouldn't that be wonderful? <laughs> Well, that's deferral, essentially. And so, Bruce, you mentioned this idea of deferral. And my first thought when you said that was that people would say, oh, I don't want to defer my taxes. I want to get them over with. But then it occurs to me that there's a place where we do defer taxes every payroll period. And most people are very enthusiastically doing that. So the idea of deferring tax is something that everyone already does. Eric, why don't you expand on that a little bit? Well, I'm going back to what what you said about inflation, you know, the fact that you think about what a dollar was worth 30 years ago, I would love to be paying my taxes with the value, you know, you know the value that it was 30 years ago. Just that alone has a huge significant impact. And but to your point, the logic there doesn't go away simply when you shorten the time period it still is, it's money that's being left on the table. There's value being left on the table, even if it's a year, 
well, even if it's a year deferred. Really, where I'm coming from is that deferral is not a bad thing because we all use tax deferral in our 401k and our IRA plans That's right. uh, when we put money into it. So we, what we like about contributing your 401k and IRA plans is that it defers the taxes until some later date. Could it be 30 years from now when we'll actually take that money out and pay the tax then? And so Bruce is talking about doing the same thing, just not with your payroll check. He's talking about doing that with your business when you sell it, deferring the taxes out 30 years and then paying the tax at that date in the future. Deferral's not such a bad thing, although at first blush when it ran by my ears, my thought was, why would I want to defer the taxes that far? Another question I've got for you, Bruce, is I heard you use the word installment sale. And the first thing that cropped up in my mind was, uh, that must mean that I'm not going to get all my money. In fact, I'm just going to get paid a little portion of my money every year over a 20 or 30 year period of time. Can you expand on that a little bit and help me get some clarity? Sure. The very definition of installment reporting or installment sale in law says that the seller will receive one or more payments after close of escrow. It doesn't say, however, how much that amount is to be or the time frame. Just that sometime in the future after that escrow closes, the seller will receive one or more payments. Well, in regard to the deferral approach that we were talking about, that one payment comes three decades later. In the meantime, instead of receiving sale proceeds, which are taxable, they're receiving loan proceeds from the investment business loan, which by law is non-taxable upon receipt. So my thought is, I'm selling my business, retiring. I'm not interested in having a loan out there. Help me think through that, because that doesn't sound very attractive. No, because one would think that you have to pull money out of pocket to pay for the interest on the loan and ultimately the payoff of the loan. But that's not the case. In this particular structure, what actually pays the interest on the loan is the interest earned on the installment contract every year through a payment structure required by the lender. So not a dime out of pocket would ever be paid by the seller who employs this type of planning approach. And then at the close of the the 30th year, when the contract is paid off, then those are the monies used to pay off the loan at that time. I've got a question. So a lot of businesses, it, it started, It's these are family-owned businesses who are then transferring the business or selling it to the next generation. How does that come into effect and especially when considering the estate taxes? Yeah, well, first of all, whenever you're talking about selling a capital asset, be it a business, for example, to another family member, you want to be a little cautious. Not that you cannot do it. You certainly can. But if you're using the deferral approach to do that for the seller, that's perfectly fine. But it's very, very important that whomever buys that business or the asset that they are buying is that they don't resell it within three years. Because if they did, then it would all become, could be nullified by the IRS and the taxes still go back to the original seller. So there'd be a three-year waiting period before the buyer could then resell the asset. Other than that, there's no problem in doing it. What haven't we talked about that we ought to have? Regarding specifically that planning approach or other things? Regarding your planning approach. On that particular planning approach, well, there's always the risk. <laughs> you always want to look at risk because there's risk in everything having to do with tax planning. And principally, the risk is, of course, how the IRS views it. With that particular plan approach, 
again, installment reporting has been in law for 107 years, came into existence in 1913, the very year that income taxes was introduced to the United States. So again, nothing new, nothing untried. But in 1980, the IRS actually codified into law the ability to monetize installment contracts without losing tax deferral. And then eight years ago in 2012, the chief counsel of the IRS actually issued a memorandum in favor of doing it. So there's a very lengthy history in law through the years that support this. Now, that doesn't mean that the IRS couldn't challenge it. But in the 25 years since the first one was put into place in 1995, the IRS has never challenged it. They have reviewed it in audit that they've done. I've had three of my clients reviewed an audit, and all of them came out the other side perfectly fine. So there's nothing to say that the IRS couldn't challenge it, but I think they'd have a very difficult time proving their case. The reason for that, with this particular plan approach, a person who does it, they must file Form 6252, the IRS's own form on installment reporting. So the transaction is being fully disclosed on the IRS's own form. Of course, that's important. So the, the basis is disclosed, the sale price is disclosed, any capital improvements disclosed, taxable amount, all of that. But I think it's on line 24, it asks, how much did you receive? And the answer is zero. And that's perfectly accurate because none of the sale proceeds would be received until that contract is paid off three decades later. So everything is being disclosed. But you know, there's three principal doctrines that the IRS always uses to nullify and attack a transaction. The installment, I'm sorry, the um, form over substance doctrine, the step transaction rule doctrine, and the economic substance rule doctrine. Well, in the memorandum that the chief counsel of the IRS issued in 2012, he addressed two of them, the substance over form and step transaction rule doctrines, and states that the IRS should not try to use those because this planning approach complies. Well, that leaves the third one, which is the economic substance rule doctrine. When the IRS tries to use that, they're essentially telling the taxpayer, look, you're just trying to use this thing that, as a tax dodge. There's no economic substance to the transaction whatsoever. That'd be difficult to prove because there's only one thing that installment reporting can be applied against, and that is profit. And profit certainly is economic substance. So no one is saying, and I certainly wouldn't say, that the IRS couldn't challenge it. They, they certainly could. But you, one has to weigh what that risk is versus the benefits and see what the probabilities are to come to a decision of implementing it if they're comfortable in doing so. So a lot of, a lot of clients have got real estate. And when they're trying to sell, sometimes it can become difficult to do a 1031 exchange. They're actually not as easy as everyone thinks that they are. You've got to plan ahead. You've got to match, match things up um, right for right. And, and so is this the best strategy for that? Or are there other things that can be done if someone is trying to, if someone is selling either rental property or commercial property? Well, this is one very viable option, but it's one option. There's other things that can be done. For example, if they're not comfortable with the deferral period, it's possible to, to sell the asset and eliminate the taxes. You can do that through different types of charitable tax planning, for example. Now, most advisors would default to a thing called a charitable remainder unit trust. 
I've done several of those through the years. Uh, it's a great tool. Essentially, what happens is that a, a specific type of trust is established by the owner of the, of the asset to be sold. Once it's established, they gift the asset into the trust. The trustee then sells the asset on behalf of the trust, which is tax-free by law. All the capital gains taxes are wiped out. They get a charitable tax deduction for the gift, which can be applied against ordinary income. And they're receiving lifetime income or income for the uh, term of years up to 20 years. It can be extremely effective if all the elements of the transaction are there. Now, if there's debt involved, they can still do this, but it's going to uh, trigger a different type of tax on the debt. So sometimes what is done from a structural viewpoint is that only a portion of the sale, let's say real estate, goes into the trust. The rest of it doesn't as a percentage interest of the property being sold. That portion that is not in the trust is taxable, but the charitable tax deduction that they get for doing this for the portion that does go in the trust is used to apply against a taxable gain that isn't in the trust and therefore therefore nullified a large amount, if not all of the taxes that do not go in the trust. The one thing about the charitable tax planning, however, that needs to be kept in mind is that it's great to eliminate the capital gains taxes on the front end, but it must be understood that the IRS imposes a four-tier tax system on the payout of the distributions coming from the trust. Uh, so all the capital gains taxes are eliminated up front, but the distribution is likely to be taxed going out for whatever time frame they have the distributions going for up to life. So this is very complex, uh, perhaps yeah. one of the most complex podcasts we've done. Could you take all of this complexity and sum it up in a sentence or two that kind of gives us the point of what we ought to consider and be thinking about? Well, that's quite a challenge, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I think you can be summarized just to assure your listeners that there's a lot of hope that tax law offers. But it's a matter of ferreting it out. It's a matter of taking the time to, and they should take the time. They should never rush into anything if they can at all be able to do that. But to, to really understand what the tax problem is first, what their goals and objectives are, then take the time with qualified professionals like yourself who are skilled and versed and educated in how to delve into law and then work together with the client and their other advisors to find the solutions that they can really seriously look at and then craft it around them, customize it to them. The one thing that I've seen through the years in business that I really don't particularly appreciate is a lot of the advisors out there, they, they try to fit every client into a specific product or a specific mold. I personally don't think that's right. I think it should be the exact opposite of that, that you've got to identify what the need is, what the comfort levels are. Then you find things in law that are actually verified that they work in law and are supported by law, and you craft it, you customize it to that specific client and their specific needs and objectives. I like that word hope, and uh, I had never thought about our business giving people hope, but it's really what we do. I've got to tell you, if I was like your client who was going to uh, sell my business for $32 million and walk away with only $7 million, 
while seven million is a lot of money, that would be pretty discouraging to me. And if you could increase that number from seven million to twelve million, as you indicated, that would be hope giving. So I think I've adopted a new mantra there that we're in the <laughs> hope giving business for people who are having to pay taxes when they uh, sell their business or any other highly appreciated asset. So uh, Bruce, thank you for uh, infusing a little hope into our day uh, on the podcast. We appreciate that. Well, you're more than welcome. My name is Barry Watts. I am the host of The Truth About Taxes and Retirement. You can reach out to our firm and get more information about us or get in contact with Bruce. And if you're in the business of selling your business or perhaps about to sell a highly appreciated asset. Before you do that, we should have a conversation because there are things you can do that will reduce the taxes that you would have to pay. There is hope. And that's the big message that Bruce brought to us today. Tune in next time we have the podcast. It's easy for you to download or subscribe so that you can get these right onto your iPhone or your uh, mobile device very easily and quickly. And you can always find out more about our firm or get in touch with us by going to savingyoutaxes.com. Thank you for listening to The Truth About Taxes and Retirement Podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of SavingYouTaxes.com. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for professional tax and investment advice. Always seek the advice of your own qualified advisor with any questions you may have regarding taxes and investing.